Welcome to another episode of Financial Freedom 101. This is episode five, and I'm your host, Robert. Today, you're in for a treat. Not only is it the first time we have a live guest on the show with us to talk about their journey to financial freedom, but it's also one of my own power team members. We have Simon Kerr from Auxilium Property Management there in the UK. Simon, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hi, Robert. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, really good, actually. It's actually a bit sunny in the UK at the moment, so I'm kind of enjoying the weather. It's nice. That's, that's, yeah, that's a uh, you know shock in the UK. Normally, it's you, know, you get the stereotypical overcast and cloudy. That's what we had today in Singapore. So yeah. It's not warm for an Australian, but it's warm for England, so I'm quite yeah. enjoying it. Oh, that, that's good. So as most of our listeners already know, my wife and I, we opened up a property investment business over in the UK back in 2016. Because we live overseas, and as we talked about on the last podcast episode, we needed to build our power team members up to make sure we find people that could help us build our property investment business. And one of those individuals that we were actually introduced to probably about three years ago now, three and a half years ago, was Simon. We contacted him because he's a sourcing agent and he's able to help us find property, help us find deals or opportunities in the UK. So Simon, uh, you mind telling us a little bit about your business, what you do, what type of services and everything you offer? Sure. So back then I was running my own little sourcing business called Trends Property Sourcing. Um, this, this was something I set up right out of doing some property training, which we did along similar lines. Yep. And yeah, from there, basically, it was just being a little sourcing agent and things evolved from there into what, what we have now because it was you know, almost three years ago. So yeah. currently now we have a sourcing company along with some business partners called Kiss Sourcing Limited, and we have Exilium Property Management. Exilium Property Management is a company that specializes in the social housing side of the business. So there's two very distinct businesses there. One's a sourcing business, which feeds property into the other business, into our investors, and one business solely is just about working with the social and supported housing providers. So there's, there's two different businesses there. Oh, uh, that's quite interesting. For, for property investment, it's, it's all about finding those deals for the houses. But the social housing, it actually gives you a exit for uh, your properties. Why are you investing? Where, what are you going to do with the property once you get it? A lot of people are very interested in social housing. Can you tell us a little bit about social housing? Why is that such a sure. big opportunity? Sure. Okay. So th there's a lot of terms that get bandied around in this. Social housing is quite a generic term to describe the entire industry. There's social housing, there's supported living, there's long leases, there's short leases, there's all sorts of stuff out there. Um, but th there's a few different types, but we operate in a certain area of that basically. And that is generally speaking, two to five year leases. These are with companies, not directly with the council. And the benefit of this, when you do it correctly, is that the rent is guaranteed, the internal maintenance of the property is guaranteed. Um, the term of the contract, you know what's coming in every single month, be it a two-year contract or three or five. Yes, there are some break clauses in there that you know can be exercised if there's an issue. But generally speaking, 99% of the time, the benefit of this strategy for a landlord and property owner is it's incredibly hands-off. Once the initial property is in place, once the contract signed, once the tenants are in, all that happens from a landlord from a month-by-month -month basis is money drops in your bank account. Your phone doesn't ring at two o'clock in the morning when a HMO tenant's lost their keys and all those other fun things with running HMOs. All of that disappears out of your life. It becomes very, very hands-off. No, that that's great. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends, I'm sure you know a lot of people as well, who yeah. 
you know, they've rented out their property to somebody and three months down the road, that individual stops paying the rent. Yeah. What do you do with them? Now, you know, especially during COVID, you can't evict the person. So you're just racking up all these bills. Yeah. So with social housing, you know, based on yeah. what you said, you get the money regardless of you know, the organization, the charity or what, whoever is sponsoring that house, they're actually paying you directly. Is that correct? correct. That is correct. Now, there's always a caveat to that, which is kind of why a business exists, because there are good and bad social and supported housing providers, like there is good and bad any business, you know. So a big part of what we do as a company is making sure those companies are ethical and sustainable, because some of them aren't, basically. There is a regulator in this country called Roche, regulator of social housing. They do a lot of work, working along, more so the big companies and the little ones, regulating them. But if you're not very careful about who you work with and how they operate and how they're funded, these deals can fall over. They're not foolproof by any stretch of the imagination. Just because you sign a contract doesn't mean it's guaranteed for five years. So the reason our business came into existence was because of that reason. And a lot of landlords didn't even know what questions to ask because they love the concept of social housing. They love the fact that, you know, that guaranteed rent and very hands off. But they didn't know a lot of the terminology and contracts. They didn't know who was good, who was bad. So we realized there was an opportunity there to help landlords and property investors out here, either here or overseas. That's how we came about. Oh, that's great. I mean, you have you mentioned about all the maintenance stuff being taken care of as well for you. That's a huge one. I mean, we, we have a couple of HMOs that, that we own. And I'm getting pinged, you know, every couple of days, you know, at least once every two weeks from our property management company that's saying, hey, we got a leak in the bathroom. Hey, or this person's door won't open, or we got this, we got that. You know, just a whole bunch of different issues, or the garden needs to be kept. Yeah. You know, this is going to cost you 50 pounds. This is going to cost you 150 pounds. You know, can we do this? Oh, plus it's also administration fee for them. So yeah. that, that's a so big deal. 99% of that disappears. So in, in most contracts, landlord is responsible for boiler roof and structure. Boiler self-explanatory, roof is self-explanatory. Yeah. Structure means like internal water pipes. And if a double glazing window blows, you've got to fix it. If a tenant throws a chair through the same window, they fix it, so on and so on. So to give you a good example, we've been managing properties now for two years for our investors. The longest one running so far is two years. And we have had to zero expenditure for any of our landlords ever. Oh, so once a contract's been up, we haven't sent a single bill out to a landlord for any property repair that needs to be done that's their responsibility. Not one, never. Now, we've had a property that's just about to hand over and there was a water leak in the ceiling and a ceiling fell in. So that was definitely a landlord problem and that's getting fixed now. Yeah. But that was that was about two days before the tenants moved in. So was, the timing was kind of helpful. So it would be worse if the tenants were in, but those kind of things happen. They happen in every property. Yeah. You know, parts leak, things leak, it happens. But of, of all the landlords we have on our books so far, and we've handed over about 450 rooms, which is about wow. I don't know, 40 or 50 properties, something like that, um, averaging out four or five bed HMOs, then there's been zero expenditure. The biggest thing we actually get with, with landlords who've had HMOs is they ring us after a couple of months and go, oh, what's happening? I'm like, what do you mean what's happening? They're like, well, you're not ringing me and telling me. I said, well, is your rent getting paid? Yeah. Is there a problem? No. Then you're all good. They find it really hard to transition between those phone calls every couple of days to nothing for months. That's the biggest issue that landlords have, actually, is that, that transition and getting used to it. 
Uh, I, I can imagine. So just for a lot of our listeners who may not be uh, into property investing, HMO is houses of multiple occupation, which is essentially you rent out the property by the room. Then you have buy to lets. Those are single family homes. They're, that's where you rent out the entire house to a single family. You have two different strategies. When it comes to social housing, what's what tends to be the biggest strategy that they're looking for? Is it HMOs or is it buy-to-lets? It used to be HMO, um, but that's a very tenant-driven profile now. The majority of the demand nowadays is one-bedroom flats and two-bedroom houses. They can be mid-terrace, they can be end-terrace, it doesn't really matter. The regulators certainly going towards what they call their own front door policy, mm-hmm. where each tenant has their own front door, which is the complete opposite to a shared accommodation property like right. HMO. It's a tenant management thing. So we do a lot of work with the asylum providers over here, which house asylum seekers, mm-hmm. and they work great in HMO. The tenant profile works great. But housing six or eight drug or alcohol-affected adults in a HMO doesn't work, which is why they work in better in two-bed houses and one-bed flats. So the demand is very tenant-driven, and it's about understanding all of that to understand demand. I would say, yes, at the moment, it's probably a fairly 50-50 mix between HMOs and and ones and two-beds that we do at the moment. So it depends on the client, depends on the area, but that's the major demand within the space that we operate in. Okay, that no, that's good to know. Now, is, is this sort of driven by the COVID factor as well? I know over the last year and a half, HMOs have really taken the hits uh, because of COVID. People don't want to live in close proximity to three or four people that they don't know. And it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly accelerated certain providers steering away from HMOs. Hundred percent certainly has. Okay, it was all going that way. But the, the, the pandemic has certainly accelerated that quite a lot. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Now, you mentioned about looking for properties for those asylum seekers. We Everybody's seen the news. You know, Afghanistan's been in the news a lot over the last month. Uh, the U.S. has evacuated well over 50,000 Afghans to the U.S. and more being processed throughout multiple countries. I know the U.K. has taken in... It's somewhere about fifteen to twenty thousand Afghans, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, is that yeah. driving the need to social housing? Okay. So this is important to understand the difference. This is a very good difference between how things are done in this country. Mm-hmm. So the Afghans are classed as refugees. Okay, they're not here applying for asylum. They're not waiting for, you know, UK citizenship. They're not waiting for housing benefit payments. They're here. They're signed up. They're classed as UK resident. Okay. Because of that, all of the processing of those people for housing is done direct from the council, okay? There is no social housing or support to living providers in the middle, providing care and support, covering maintenance and voice. None of that's happening, okay? Currently in the UK, what's happening is the tenants are getting assigned to councils. Councils are then reaching out to landlords. Landlords are signing an AST, so a short, short-hold tenancy agreement, like any normal tenancy agreement is done with any private citizen in the UK, that is getting signed with these refugees and they are moving into your property and effectively the landlord is then that, that tenant is like any other private tenant in the UK. So you're effectively signing a standard tenancy agreement with those with the, with the Afghan refugees. Now, that could work great with some. It, it may not work great with others. There's a risk involved in that. A classic example of that is, is I moved to the UK from Australia five and a half years ago. Okay. I came here, I was, I was fully English speaking. I had a decent chunk of money in the bank. I did a lot of research. 
And it took me about two or three months to get my head around how the hell to do anything. I didn't know how to pay council tax. I didn't know what shops were what. I didn't know how the rental system here. I didn't know anything, right? It was very difficult for a somebody who came from Australia to the UK, let alone somebody who comes from a, quite frankly, a horrible situation with yeah. quite a lot of trauma on board who may or may not have a great understanding of the English language, you know, and certainly doesn't understand the English housing system. They don't, into a house. yes. they don't really have banking systems over in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, the company I work for worked in Afghanistan. Yeah, a lot of them don't understand... a some basic financial concepts yeah so unfortunately at the moment the current government policy as far as we're aware and this changes all the time but as far as we're aware is that the because they're refugees and not asylum seekers they they are just uk citizens and they are treated as such within the rental market some councils are providing a small amount of support some councils are providing financial incentives to landlords one-off payments but generally speaking they are treated like standard normal tenants you would sign up normally being a doctor or a nurse or a mechanic or whatever or somebody on housing benefit so there is a risk there to the landlord those risks are entirely up to you to decide what you want to take on what you want some landlords are perfectly fine with it some aren't so this is the whole point of how the whole social housing world works it's like any tenant model it's about understanding the risk profile okay okay so um, with asylum seekers there's companies like circo everybody said a circo well yep. certainly everybody property world in the UK's head of circuit. Yeah. They're a massive company. They have a, a big company. They control about three and a half thousand properties in the UK and they're all housing asylum seekers. All of the people in those properties are waiting for the UK government to say yes or no, you can stay. So they have limited rights. So they are supported. They're supported with income. The houses are maintained. There's a lot of support there for the landlord. There's a lot of guarantees and assurances for the landlords. With the Afghan situation, there isn't. It's an important thing to understand the difference. And quite a lot of councils do exactly the same system with UK-based tenants as well who are vulnerable. Not okay. a lot of support for the landlords. Right. So for the Afghan situation, for those of us in the property investment world, we know about universal credit. So we, we can essentially say that like the Afghans are more of the universal credit group and then social housing, asylum seekers, they're in a different ones where everything's right. really paid to you directly. Correct. You yes. as a landlord, I should say. You as a landlord get the money and the rent paid directly from the social supported housing provider who either draws those funds from local government or central government. It has nothing to do with the tenant's ability to, to not pay or, okay. or rent. So there are some assurances of rent being paid. There's some, some assurances of the property condition being kept and your asset being looked after. There's a contract in place for that. How valuable, how well that works depends on the provider and how sustainable they are. That's a, another four-hour conversation. But right. with the Afghan situation, think of it like you are you have a vulnerable person in the UK that you are signing a direct, a short shorthold tenancy agreement with. And you need to risk assess that as such. Okay. So we, we talked about how social housing is a good option um, for or an exit strategy if you're buying a property, what you can use with it. Uh, yeah. There's another one that a lot of people are familiar with. It's rent to rent. Sure. And rent to rent is basically there's a lot of these companies out in uh, the UK that will sort of take your property and pay you a guaranteed monthly. Yep. Supposedly a guaranteed monthly rent for that property. How yep. is social housing different than that? So 
a rent to rent person is effectively a business that's hoping they're going to get tenants to cover the cost of what they're paying a landlord. Okay. Social housing providers, the funding comes from local or central government and the money is guaranteed via contract, providing that that social housing provider stays in business. Okay. It's a much more secure long-term tenant that's backed by local or central government. Okay. That it's about under so once you look at how that social and supported housing provider works, once you understand the company structure where the funding comes from, due diligence basically. We do due, due diligence on any deal we do. Part of working with social and supported housing providers, part of that due diligence process is done on the provider itself. Once you understand how they work and how sustainable they are, then you understand where the money comes from, and then you know the money is always going to be there every single month. Whereas when you're doing a rent to rent with a private investor, they are hoping their marketing and skill set is good enough to keep enough tenants in that property to pay you what they need to pay you, plus make a margin and cover costs. Right. And that's a variable thing every single month. As we all know with running yep. HMOs, tenancies and costs are very variable. Yes. Whereas when you're on a social housing lease, all of those variabilities go away. Yeah, I, you haven't said it, but I know from my understanding of social housing, sure. it's if you sign that social housing contract and there's nobody yeah. actually staying in the house that particular month, you're still getting paid that rent. You are. Now, that's another thing that comes down to sustainability. They can't afford to do that forever. Correct. Okay? So understanding what the tenant profile, we call them referrals, but what amount of tenants are waiting. So to give you some idea, we spoke to one provider and this was in St. Helens and they, had, they, had a, um, they needed a three-bedroom family home for a tenant. Right, but that was it. That was their demand in St. Helens. Okay. We have another provider in Wigan, and this is for two bed houses. We have another provider in Wigan who has 300 people waiting for two bed houses. So it's about understanding demand. And with demand comes security of contract and lease. Because if if that one tenant, you know, if they fall ill or, you know, if they die, you know, which is worst case, and that tenant goes away or whatever, they go to prison or they just simply, they, they get on with their life. They come out of that supported housing structure and move into their own private tenancies, which is what we hope they all do. Then you need to know that provider has another tenant waiting for your property. So it's, demand is a big thing within this space, just like it is with anything else. Yeah. And if there's lots of demand, then their ability to keep your house full, which gives them the ability to be able to afford to pay the rent, it's a done thing. That's so important to understand. And Due diligence. I've been a big proponent of due diligence from day one that I started in my property journey. Uh, it's actually a theme that I'm going to do a podcast on later. I talked a little bit about it in our last one about due diligence uh, on power team members and being able to talk to them, make sure that they're offering the services that you need to. You got to do that for pretty much anybody that you're dealing with, any service provider, any support it's- staff or anybody. It's horribly complicated in social housing world. We're incredibly lucky we have Christy, our business partner. She's worked in the social supported housing world space for 20 years. She really, really understands it. But on our, some of our training stuff we do nowadays as part of our business expansion, it takes her six and a half hours to teach her due diligence process to people. And trust me, you need quite a few coffees with that one. It's, yes. it's, 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 it's a, for what is intentionally the government funding homes for vulnerable people with care, it is an insanely complicated world. It is insanely complicated. So without some some people don't even know what questions to ask, let alone actually understanding the answers. It's it's insanely complicated. Yeah. So um 
due diligence in this space is incredibly important, but it's also having the knowledge to ask the right questions. So that actually brings me to one of the questions. I, I hear about this all the time, you know, when I talk about uh, trying to find sourcing agents, you know, yeah. well, why are you going to a sourcing agent to find yourself a property when you can just go to Rightmove or Zoopla, a couple of UK property sites and find a property and purchase it yourself? Well, yeah, I can do that, but you know what? I'm not there. I can't see the property. I can't do my due diligence on the physical property itself. I can do due diligence on everything else. I need somebody to actually see the property for me. So when it yeah, comes absolutely. to social housing, what keeps me from actually going to these councils or these charities myself? Why do I need to go through you to help me find these social housing contracts? And why can't I go to the charities myself and get that contract? No, you can if you want to. I have a good analogy I use here. So you, if something's wrong with your car, you can take your car to a mechanic who's a professional to fix it. Okay. Or I use an English reference here, but you can go by Haynes Manual right, or Gregory's Manual, which is a manual that teaches you how to fix your own car. You can go to a parker's and buy all the parts, and you can sit down in your driveway and fix it yourself if you want to by reading the book, okay? It's up to you entirely. You can do one of those either way. One of those is a hell of a lot easier for you, and you have to pay a mechanic his, his fee for it, or you can spend three days of your life and skin your knuckles and try and work it out the hard way. It's entirely up to you. That's the best analogy for why our business exists. We make your life easy. Okay, it's that simple. We have a very deep understanding of how these social and supported housing providers work. We understand the due diligence process is necessary to spot good, bad, and the ugly in the industry. Our sourcing agents have a very good understanding of what our providers want and where they want it. And we also understand our investors' requirements as well. It's about understanding how all of that ties together. And do we charge a fee for that? Yes. Do, do some landlords absolutely understand that fee is quite minimal for the work we provide? Yeah. Some absolutely do not agree that what they need to pass it on, go do it themselves. It's 100% up to the landlord and the investor about whether they think our service is valuable to them or not. Some do, some don't. Some don't think they do. Then they come back to us six months later with their head between their legs and go, yeah, yeah, okay, I stuffed it up. Can you fix it for me, please? We get that quite a lot. Yeah. So it's about seeing value in anything you do, you know. Um, some people don't believe in paying professionals to do anything. Some people think it's the best way forward. And I'm a firm believer in I'm good at what I'm good at, and I don't try and do things I'm not good at just to save a few dollars you know, exactly. or pound, whatever you operate in. So that's the mentality we have with our clients. Some do, some don't. It, you know, it, it's about whether you see value in the service or not, really. Exactly. I mean, I spoke about on uh, on the last podcast about, Robert Kiyosaki saying, you know, I'm paraphrasing what he said in his book, but if he's the smartest man in the room, he's surrounding himself with the wrong people. It's all about building that team of professionals to get you where you want to go. I understand a lot about property investing. I know how to do my due diligence. I understand social housing, but not to the level that you know it which is why you're part of my power team. You understand social housing. You've surrounded yourself with professionals in the social housing realm. It's Kim, right? Uh, I'm, I'm horrible with names. Christy. Christy, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think I've talked to her once or twice um, sure. previously. But yeah, I mean, you said she's been in the social housing field for going on 20 years. She knows the stuff. Why wouldn't you want... Somebody who knows the system, knows how to get in there, knows how to do the due diligence on these different providers 
instead of rolling the dice and hoping that you've done something right? I have a pretty good knowledge about how the social housing world works. But if I'm on a conversation with Christy and a social housing provider, it's like they're speaking a different language. I have no idea what the hell they're talking about half the time. They go so deep into things. There's so many acronyms flying around. There's so many different levels to everything. Even I don't get it half the time, you know. I have a really solid understanding about how a property ties together with these providers, how to do due deal, how how properties should operate. But I work in the property side of our business, you know. I spend a lot of my time talking to builders and yelling at them because fire doors don't fit properly, you know. And I, I do all that kind of stuff. Christie's job within our business is just the liaison and the due diligence with our social housing providers. That's all she does for us because it's such a difficult, specialized part of our business. We have one person who's a business partner, obviously, but that's all she does. Because without her, our business cannot exist. It simply can't exist. Exactly. It's surrounding yourself with the people that you need to get your business moving forward and continue moving forward. And you need to have those professionals in the different field. I I consider myself a jack of all trades. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm an infantry officer. I was an infantry officer in the Marine Corps. I had to understand logistics. I had to know operations. I had to understand yeah. personnel management. I had to do everything because the way we operated it, we operated out in front of everybody else, uh, alone and unafraid. So I understand all this stuff. I, I understand what we need to do. And I, I can grasp concepts quickly, mm. but I'm never going to have that deep, um, unless I concentrate and I go headfirst into social housing, and then it's going to take me a long time, but I will never have the understanding that you or Christy has in social housing. And honestly, why should I? Exactly. What I say to investors is your job is to find the deal and find the money. Okay. That's your job and vet that deal. My job is to find and vet your intended user, which is the social housing provider. You can use your own sourcing team if you want. You can use our sourcing team. As far as Exilium is concerned, where the property comes from is irrelevant. You know, some investors like to use our sourcing team, some don't. Perfectly fine. There's no problems at all there. But for the social and supported housing side of it, it's really, really important to understand what you're actually signing up for because it's a long time. Five years is a long time to trust any company with your assets worth yes. one hundred, two, three, four hundred thousand pounds. It's a long time. So you want to make sure that what you're signing is correct. I mean, I'm not focusing on social housing. That's always in the back of my mind as a exit strategy for a house. Um, Right now, we have an HMO uh, looking at primary students or fresh graduates, you know, young adults just getting out there by themselves. And we got the place filled. I don't need social housing right now. But I I think I've actually recommended a few people to you who they've had a property, their tenant left. It's been two, three months. They can't find another tenant. What do they do with that property? So I've recommended them to you. And and again, they don't understand. They're not focusing on social housing. They don't understand social housing. So leave it to the experts to work with them. Social housing is a problem-solving tenant profile. It really is. You may have a HMO in an area where, for instance, um, Barnsley. So I think Barnsley charges council tax per bedroom now. Okay. So quite a lot of areas are nowadays. Whereas when you're working with a social supported housing provider, they're exempt to that. So if you have a HMO that by the time you pay council tax per bedroom, you're making no money whatsoever with all the hassle of HMO, you may consider a social housing contract is much better for you. Even though your income per month is actually less, your net profit per month will be much more. 
Yeah. Understanding how a social housing contract works is about understanding your net income. It really is. What are my expenses versus what's my income? Yeah. And what you find with social housing is, especially in the HMO market, your expenses are vastly less than what they are with private tenants like students or professionals. Your gross income is less, but your expenses are vastly less. Yeah. So it's about doing the math, really, and doing the math over the contract term and understanding how much money you actually have in your pocket every month to go spend on things that make your life better. Yep. Yeah, uh, that that's definitely a big deal. Um, just having that peace of mind as well, um, knowing that you got the income coming in every month. If the tenant messes up your place, somebody else is going to fix it. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Look, you're based in Singapore. So international investors, this is a double-edged sword, unfortunately. Yep. So for them, it's a really great strategy because it's so hands-off. But lending in this space is much more difficult. Yes. Okay. Like we have some investors in Singapore who are they're paying most English investors if they're doing say a four bed mini HMO circo. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're somewhere between three and a half to four percent interest rates, interest only, seventy five percent value. If you're an international, that's jumping up to five and a half percent. So there are added expenses with doing this, and you have to understand your numbers. Yep. But even then, for most investors, they're paying that on a private HMO anyhow. Or yeah. very close to it. It really doesn't make much difference, but it's much, much more hands off for them. Yep. Also, about buying the right property that suits the demand as well. Exactly. Well, it, it's not only that; it's understanding what your strategies are to yeah. look at the finances and figure out how much you actually need to put into the property to renovate it. Obviously, yeah. if it's going into social housing, you're not going to spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars on renovation when. 10, 12, $13,000 yeah. or yeah. pounds. Um, Fit for purpose is, is the term we use here. You know, yeah. we talk to landlords all the time who used to do student accommodation. They used to spending 50, 60,000 pounds sometimes on renovation. Whereas on the same house, instead of doing all en suites and feature walls and super high end kitchens and all that kind of stuff, they can put a good old cheap magnet kitchen in there. They can put basic fire doors in, not really fancy fire doors. You don't need all the flashlights, single pane and down lights to find. Yes, some of this affects your refinance. You have to think about that as well at the end and your invaluation. But you can save an enormous amount of money doing a fit for purpose property. Now, this isn't about supplying a bad home for people, but you have to understand that a social housing provider doesn't have the funding to replace horribly expensive carpets and horribly expensive yep. kitchen tenant damages it. They want quality stuff that doesn't break the bank, you know? Yep. 10 pound a square meter carpet, not 30 pound a square meter carpet, so on and so on, basically. Stuff that's simple for them to replace. They're not going to buy the budget trying to keep a super high end property up to the spec it was. So it's about understanding how this model works the best. Exactly. And that brings us around to the last point that I really want to talk to you sure. about. And that's all about being flexible. Being yeah. social housing, great, great example of being flexible on exit strategy. Well, my HMO, I built this property as a four-bedroom HMO, but I can't get it rented out. What do I do? If I sold it, yeah, I could break even, but hey, there's social housing demand. I can be flexible and move over to that. You started out talking about your, you know, how you got started in this uh, social housing market. And when we first talked, it wasn't about you, you do social housing sourcing. What's that like? Where, no, I was talking to you about sourcing properties. For me to invest yeah. in, not social housing yeah. properties, but actual property. So what what happened there? Why why are you doing social housing now and you know not doing uh actual property sourcing for investors? 
honestly, supply and demand. So where it all came from, actually, it came from two different places. It all it actually came from what? It all came from the property education company we did. So sitting in a room of 80 people listening, you're networking, you're talking to them about what they do and why they do it. And an awful lot of those people wanted to get involved in social housing and nobody had a clue how to do it. They didn't know how what what yeah. and secondly, I was on my mentorship with my mentor, and I said to him, and I talked to him about this all the time, but you know, 30 seconds of that mentorship over three days changed my future. You know, I said to him, You do some social housing, where do you get the leases from? He goes, I was way too hard to pay somebody to do it for me. It's exactly what he said to me. And based upon that 30-second conversation, I realized that there was an opportunity there. And the reason I did what I did and change from just being a normal sourcing agent through to how we've grown our businesses now was because that I've never been very good at raising small amounts of money, angel money, we call it in property, where other people lend you money to buy properties with. I've never been very good at that part of it. Some of it's because I live in a different country to where I spent most of my adult life, so I don't have those networks. There's a lot of reasons for it. But I decided to grow a business within property for the first few years as opposed to buying property. So we tried raising a bit of money for the first six or eight months. It really wasn't working for us. We were a bit frustrated. So we thought, right, there's got to be more opportunity here. Then that came about, that conversation came about. We thought, right. I also met Christy at a similar time to that as well. And all the pieces just fell in together nicely, really. So the socializing expert who wanted to come into the business with me, we had the knowledge and the drive, had a lot of business knowledge myself, so I knew how to do this. And we just went a bit left field with it. And it took us actually seven months after. So we decided to start the business in November 2018, I think it was. Mm-hmm. No, 2019, sorry. November 2019. Sorry, I'm thinking back now. And um, it actually took us six or seven months before we actually signed our first contract up. Because mm-hmm. it took us that long to get our head around how this business worked. And the business model probably changed about 10 times in that six months. Yep. We had to do it this, no, this way works better, no, this way works better, no, this way works better. And then we finally came upon a solution for it and a model that worked really well, that, that didn't scare landlords off with fees, that provided a good service that people would actually want to use. And things have still evolved. They evolve every day. I mean, I think we've rewritten our business plan about eight times so far in the last two yep. years, just because that's what happens. Yep. Opportunities come up and you have to evolve. And then a, then a wonderful pandemic happened for two years, yes. you know, <laughs> and we had exactly. to really evolve. But yeah, you, you, have, you, have to look at, you have to look at yourself, your business every week, every month, every day, and decide what you need to do to tweak it to make it work in this pretty crazy market at the moment. Yep. Exactly. I mean, I I take a lot of stuff that I've learned from the military uh, and put it into my everyday life. And one of the unofficial mottos for the U.S. Marine Corps is improvise, adapt, and overcome. Yeah, you've got to make do with what you got. You got to look at the situation, understand what's going on, and being able to tweak, be flexible, being able to evolve with the situation to grow and expand. No, it, yeah. it definitely sounds like that is exactly what you've done. And you've taken the knowledge from what you had. It, it wasn't that you couldn't raise the fund, but you weren't getting the traction that you needed on the first one. Yeah. You, so you went to another plan that started coming along a little bit, but then that led you into what, where you're at now. And it sounds like your business is doing really great right now. Yeah, what happens is when you when you concentrate on doing one thing and getting really good at it, opportunities arise. Yeah. You know. I mean, we can raise money now. There's no problems at all. I just helped fund a half million pound supported living project. 
So those things happen all the time now, but they, they come about because of reputation. They come about because people have got to know us on social media. You build trust with people a different way. We built trust with people by running a business that's very ethically run and that has a good reputation in the space. That builds trust with people who then come to you with money. Beforehand, we didn't have anything to leverage against. We didn't have any family members. We had no reputation. So we decided that, okay, let's partner that for a second. Let's work on this for a few years. And that money will come and it did. And it has come. So now, you know, I'm buying some property very shortly with my pension and we've got other investor money coming in and we've got lots of exciting stuff happening with that about ownership of property. But that has come because we've done other things to generate that that we know it would. It's about having a short-term plan and a long-term plan about why you do things. It it definitely, like I said, it definitely sounds like things are coming together for you. I'm I'm happy to hear that, you know, all all the success that you're having, you know, being flexible, having the right team in place to support what you're doing is is always critical. I mean, I I am conscious of the time for the podcast. I definitely want to have you back on and because I know you can talk about social housing and the benefits of social housing for days days on end. (laughs) I mean, talking about the due diligence side just in and of itself. It's a extremely important topic, which I will be discussing in a uh, in a future podcast. We have our Wolfpack Academy, where we actually have a thing on how to do due diligence on suppliers, on partners and everything, just real general stuff. Um, But it goes into a little bit of details of what types of questions you should ask, what you think about. So what what you guys do on social housing, I know you could talk for days on that as well, but really enjoyed having you on this podcast. I've gotten a lot out of it. I hope our listeners uh, get a lot out of this. Again, really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, telling us about your business and what you've done. Any last words you have for our listeners? No, not really. Just thank you very much for having me on for starters. It was really great to chat to you about this. And hopefully the listeners got some stuff out of it. Hopefully, you know, that they understand that social housing supported housing is an amazing thing to do from a landlord's point of view. You get a, the one thing I never really said, and I I get yelled at for doing this by my business partners, but ultimately why you do this is to help people, you know? How we gauge our success is how many rooms we supply. We're a bit under five, 450, 500. Now I'd have to check, so it changes a bit, but quite regularly actually nowadays. But we gauge our success on not how much money's in the bank. We gauge our success on how many people we help. Yep. And it's it's lovely to be financially free. It's lovely to own lots of properties. Getting to help people who wouldn't have a roof over their head while doing that, it's a pretty exactly. cool way of living. So, you know, that, that's that's what we do with our life. So, and, and, you know, it's very, very rewarding. It's nice to get to do this, get a bit more financially free, get a great income, but also get to help people as well. Exactly. And and that's one of the things, reason why, you know, I've I've added you to my power team. I like the way you do things. I like the way you look at things. And because I know that you're in it for the long term. You don't want the one and done sort of thing. You want that long-term relationship. So that's why I've chosen you for my power team. That's why I, I think you're you're a good fit for what we want to do for our listeners, for our Wolfpack students, for you know, the yeah. property investors yeah. that are listening to us. Like I said, whether, whether anybody's interested in this space or not, happy to have a chat. There's no obligation. You know, we, we're good at what we do. You know, you're great at what you do. If anybody wants to have a chat about this, more than happy to have a chat. Yeah. So, I mean, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed our show. If you want to learn more about social housing and get in contact with uh, Simon, visit us on our website. The link is going to be in the show notes. 
drop us a note on that and we can get that to Simon and he can contact you and answer any of your questions. Um, so I hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this episode. Thanks again for listening and join us in two weeks for the next episode. Have a great week ahead.